You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Well, hello, and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to introduce you to Colleen Hubbard. A native of New England, Colleen now lives in the UK with her family, and she wrote her debut novel, Housebreaking, while on maternity leave from her job at the NHS. So here today to talk about her debut novel and so much more is Colleen Hubbard. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Colleen. Hi, it's nice to be here with you. Well, nice to have you. So I'm going to ask you the same question I ask everybody kind of right out the gate, which is, Colleen, tell me, where does your story as an author begin? Gosh, as a reader, I guess, as a reader. So I always loved reading. I used to steal books from the library as a little kid. (laughs) Unpopular comment, but it's true. Um, When I loved books a lot, I would just not return them and I would pretend that I had lost them and I had not lost them. And I just was um, a voracious reader from a very young age. I also was lucky to have, I had a public school education in elementary school. I went to Moody School in Middletown, Connecticut, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't an upscale school. There was nothing fancy about it. And yet they had a really wonderful program. They had a really wonderful school library and a really wonderful program of bringing authors into schools to talk to children. And so, you know, I first met authors, children's authors from a very young age of being in elementary school and having them come in and talk about their books. So there were local authors from Middletown, from Meriden, who would come in and say, this is the book that I've written. And let me talk, talk to you about that. So that was when it first became clear to me that there were writers who were people, just normal people who wrote books. I probably didn't think at that age, that was what I was going to do, but I, I loved books and I loved being around books. And so um, in some ways it was a natural progression. So you're probably, I mean, I'm guessing you're not on like wanted posters um, in, <laughs> in Middletown, Connecticut for stealing books. And you know, I think, you know, some people might say, you know, you know, stealing things from a young age is a predictor of future crime, but <laughs> stealing, yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, stealing, stealing books, probably, you know, you're probably safe. You're not going to wind up in a life of organized crime, you know, by, by stealing some books. What books do you remember the books that you stole or that you did not I give back? I don't remember. I just remember them being the books I needed, felt I needed access to all the time. And we just didn't have the money to buy. And so I thought, well, I, I'm going to keep these books. No, I don't have them. And so we just would not return them. I would not return them to the library. I would just keep them hidden under my bed. Um, And I don't know how many it was, but I had my library card revoked multiple times by the Russell Library of Middletown, Connecticut. That's so funny. You know, talking to so many authors, one of the things I always hear is stories like this. I mean, not about stealing books. That's a first for me, actually. But Stories like, hey, there was a librarian in my grammar school who just encouraged me to read. Or there was this fifth grade or third grade teacher who noticed something in me and encouraged me to do that. Encouragement is incredibly important for for authors, isn't it? Uh, Definitely. And I would say, you know, I could point to less so encouragement as a writer at a young level, but certainly encouragement as a reader. And I got just got to a stage in high school where I had read the books that were on the curriculum. I have an older sister who's um, was two years ahead of me at school. And when she was reading books, I would pick them up and read them. And so by the time I got to the age that she was in school, I had read all the books. And so 
at a certain point, I think I said that to the teacher and the teacher gave me a copy of the AP syllabus at the time, which showed all of the books that were referenced on the AP um, English literature test. And I just went through and I read them all. I taped it to my wall in my bedroom and I went through and I read them all. And they were so different than the books that I read at school. We just had a, a pretty traditional curriculum, I would say, of Romeo and Juliet and you know, books about a lot of books about boarding schools. And, yeah, you know, yeah, a yeah. Like, piece. like um, a separate piece. Yes, a separate yes. piece. That's one. That was on the tip of my tongue. Yeah, uh, yeah. Finney, right? Was it Finney? Yeah, Finney, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And the, the the tree branch. Yep. And so, and that it didn't look anything like my life, which was not a boarding school experience, I would say. And this, this, I remember reading for the first time. It was a Toni Morrison book that was on the AP list, and it just blew my mind. The style of writing. And the subjects that she wrote about were so different than anything that I read at school, so much more um, mature and intriguing and incredible. And that it just, it opened my mind to writing in a way that it hadn't been opened before. And I saw writing as not just telling a good story, but also there was something about style in her writing that I had never seen before. And that was really appealing to me. Yeah. So you're uh, living in Middletown. Where does your career take you? Because I'm curious as to like, when you're, you're in Middletown, you obviously go to college. Um mm-hmm. Where'd you go to school? What did you decide to study when, when you were at university? I went to Gettysburg College and where Lincoln gave his famous speech. I studied literate English literature, creative writing, and ancient Greek. I really like languages. I always really like languages. And off the back of there, moved around a lot. I probably, I can't even think of how many places I've lived, but it's a lot of places. I've moved around a lot. So I lived in Boston. I lived in Buffalo, New York. I eventually moved to San Francisco, California. I lived there for 10 years. And I just had normal jobs. I have to say a lot, not all writers, a lot of writers come from money and a lot of writers in publishing, a lot of people in publishing come from money traditionally. There's just a lot of like um, established wealth and multi-generational wealth. And that's, that's not my story. So I always had to have a job. I always had to pay my bills, pay my rent, pay for my health insurance off the back of um, work. And so I never had, I guess, a tr- what I think of as a traditional writer's job of like, I don't know what I would think of like working only part-time or, you know, just taking like a year off to do some writing. Like I never, I never did that. I always worked full-time because that's fundamentally, it's just what I needed to do to pay the bills. And so when I, when I finally wrote this book, it was because I was on maternity leave and I lived in the UK where we have adequate maternity leave. So you can take in the UK up to 12 months off of work. That's, that's the amount that I took off of work. And I wrote the book during that period. Yeah. So what, what brought you out to the UK? My husband is British, and so he is um, from Scotland, and he wanted to live here. Okay, well, there you go, and then uh, that's how that works out. <laughs> so, I mean, have you written? I mean, this is your. I know we're talking about your debut novel. Um, mm-hmm. Had you written? Have you published anything prior to that in terms of short stories or anything like that? No, I really didn't. I a lot of writing programs are built on the back of um, a lot of American writing programs. I will say are built on stories. It's a lot of people who study writing at a graduate level in the United States and do get an MFA degree and come out of an MFA program sort of come with a custom built selection of short stories because they've written and submitted short stories to workshop. I am a pretty bad short story writer. I just don't think it is not my skill. It's not my talent. I really love reading a beautiful short story. I really enjoy them. I know some people say that they're either novel readers or short story readers. I really enjoy both, but I am definitely a novel writer and not a short story writer. And it took me a long time to realize that I wrote short stories in workshop and they were never honestly very good and didn't really achieve what I set out to achieve. And this book, I think I just needed something about the amount of space 
and the pacing of a novel suited my style of writing better than a short story. Yeah. So tell me um, about the genesis of this novel. I mean, did you did it completely hatch when you were on maternity leave? Were you thinking about it beforehand? So I started writing a little bit beforehand, but I was taking a night class in creative writing, a night workshop. So I had several years where I didn't write at all. Um, I had gone to a graduate writing program. I had written a draft of something while I was there. I sent it out to agents. I didn't hear back from anybody. I had a complete non-event of writing this book. And then I just needed to get a job. I needed to pay some bills. And so I um, worked first for a charity, and then I worked for a hospital, an NHS hospital, in a job that was uh, pretty stressful. And so I decided at some point, I'd been there for a couple of years and decided, actually, I want to I want to write something. I want that life, part of my life back again. And so I signed up for a night writing class at an adult education program. Uh, I didn't expect this to be a life-changing experience, and it was. A lot of the people who were in that night workshop were much older than I was. They were people who were in their 60s and 70s, people who had full careers and then retired and decided that they wanted to write books. And they were incredibly talented writers. And it was, I would say, my experience with graduate writing programs in the United States and the UK were largely positive. I met really talented people. I worked with really talented teachers, but there was always a sense of kind of, I don't know, competition and sometimes really pointed competition in a way that I think didn't benefit me and didn't feel good. Like having to talk to the right people and make sure that you were in the right conversations with powerful people and that you became, you could consider somebody a mentor who is a very, you know, prominent writer. And for whatever reason, that's just not how I operate. It's not how I think. And it's not, I'm not good at that. I would say I'm not good at that. And I felt very separate from it and didn't like that part of the business. And then going to this night writing program, there was just something they just frankly like to write. They just love to write and they love to rewriting. And they, none of them expected to get, uh, you know, to win awards or to get big publishing contracts. They just wrote because they had a story to tell and they so deeply wanted to do it that they were willing to pay whatever, I don't know, 200 pounds, 300 pounds and meet up, whatever it was, like every Wednesday night from 7 to 9 p.m. to talk about writing. And there was just this purity of the love of it that was so good for me to see and so good for me to feel that that was my experience. That really inspired me. So during that program, I probably only wrote about 10,000 words of what was eventually an 80,000 word novel because I was working full-time and I was doing it at night and I just wrote very slowly. I didn't write at work. I didn't have this sort of job where I could you know, work, but really be writing. That wasn't the job that I was doing. But then when I was on maternity leave, I thought, okay, here's my chance. I can, I have 12 months off. Can I finish a draft of a novel in that period of time? And it turns out that I could. Yeah. So tell me about the writing process. So imagine you have your hands full with a newborn. Yeah. Um, so when did you write? Did you write from an outline? I'm just curious about all the, the sort of behind the scenes, nitty gritty details. Yeah, the nitty gritty. So one of the best things that I was told uh, by a, a teacher at one point was that it was useful to have a one page outline of the book that you were writing and have it no longer than one page, but just one page. And this was told to me by a crime writer. And when I first heard it, I thought, well, I'm more of a literary writer. I don't really need to think this way. I'm more loosey goosey. And actually I found that that was enormously helpful to have a one page outline because I could never be too lost within the story. I always knew what was the next big beat that I was moving towards with a small baby in the house. And also this happened, I was writing during the pandemic, during lockdown with no childcare, I could only write three days a week. And so my husband built for me this amazing spreadsheet where every day I would just write in my word count. It would calculate how many new words I had written from the previous day. And also I had 
general idea of how many words a finished novel was. I think it was 70 or 75,000 words. And so it would count down how many more words I had to write in order to get to my goal. And it was really helpful to do that on an everyday basis because I didn't necessarily write a lot every day. I had some words, some days where I probably wrote 300 words because that was the best that I could do that day. I was operating on no sleep or, you know, the baby was having a really difficult day. And we hadn't, we, you know, we didn't have childcare that we could line up because nobody could go anywhere because it was lockdown. But being able to see that like little chipping away day in and day out was to me incredibly inspirational. And even to see that I was taking small steps to get towards the goal was incredibly inspirational and kept me on track. Yeah. So tell me how the novel unfolds. So you begin writing, you're chipping away at it every day. When do you get to that, you know, a 70, 80,000 word count? When do you eventually get there? I think it took about six months. So I started, I had about 10,000 words, I would say before I started maternity leave, I ended up deleting almost all of those. And so the book that you see isn't, doesn't have the same beginning as I was starting to write in that workshop, but I wrote three days a week on average. There were probably some weeks when I wrote four, but most weeks it was three days a week and most days that would have been about three hours a day. And so it would have been coincided with the baby's nap. And then my husband looking after the baby for a while. And I just, I think it just, because it was consistent, I had a sense of momentum that made it easy to keep moving, moving forward and feel like I was accomplishing something. I wouldn't say that I would necessarily recommend writing with a newborn in the house to anybody else. Or I would say that I wouldn't say that it was easy. And I did have a lot going for me and that I had a very supportive husband and I had a baby who's a pretty good sleeper. And I think if any of those things weren't true, that it would have been impossible, but I lucked out and had both those things. There you go. I mean, we have uh, triplets at home. I say at home, they they just turned 20 this weekend. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> But I couldn't imagine, I no. couldn't imagine being in the right headspace to, to write anything coherent when they were home, you know, just home yeah, from no, the hospital. No, no. but you triplets, know, that's I, a whole, you deserve a medal. You deserve a, <laughs> a giant, a magnum bottle of champagne. You oh, deserve you a lot. Yeah. If only the bubbles agreed with me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's my problem with the champagne or sparkling wine, depending on where you get it from. Well, tell me, so, you know, the writing process is one thing, but then getting it ready to get published is another. So when do you start sort of outreaching to agents? What was that experience like? Because I know you mentioned before, you know, sending things out and not hearing anything back, which Mm. is really the norm for most people. Yeah. Um, So I am a very organized person, I would say. So basically what I did is I created a spreadsheet. I kept a list of agents. So I thought for whatever reason might be interested in my book and it would be because, well, one, they said they were open to submissions, but also they had somebody on their list who I thought was similar in tone or subject matter or style to what I was writing, or was a writer I admired who I would like to be, I would like to have a career like theirs. So I kept that list and I had a sense in my mind of, okay, I'm going to send, I'm going to have like a first wave of agents. I'm going to send it to you. I'll wait X amount of time to hear back. If I don't hear back from anybody, then I'll go on to this next wave of agents. Um, How it turned out for me is that I sent it to about about 10 agents, maybe nine in that first wave. And one of them said, yeah, I'll take this book if you're interested in having me. And so I ended up signing with that person. And then she was a British agent who I didn't have any connection to these agents. They aren't people who I had met or, um, you know, had any personal connection to where I, where I could say, you represent my friend. I didn't have that sort of relationship. And so I was coming completely out of the blue, but I would say that things that were operating in my benefit was that I had gone to a, you know, well-known writing program where I could say that I had worked with some well-known writers where I could say on my letter, these are the writers that I've worked with. We can talk about the idea of mentorship, which I think is very interesting in writing later, but I was able to say those things and then just package my book and say, I think this book is like these books. And I can't even remember now what books I compared it to, 
but you want to compare the book to recent successful books. Um, And so I just sent that out. Some agents got back to me and said, yes, I'm interested. Let me read more. Some agents didn't want it, but one said, yes, I'll take it. She then sent it out and someone at an imprint of Penguin, Jen Monroe's, her name is my editor, acquired the book. And so she said, yes, I think we can sell this one. Yeah. So how, how did you feel when that happened? What, what kind of emotions were you experiencing? I was very excited. I was very surprised. Yeah. There's nothing really in my life that would have led me to believe that this is what my life would look like. <laughs> I, you know, living in England, yeah. Um, having a book coming out, it's, they are just you know, I feel enormously um, grateful and lucky. Uh, also knowing that there are so many writers who are incredibly talented, who just, that hasn't happened for them yet. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, really, I mean, not having an in with anybody, you know, uh, really is the merit of your work that got you the agent that got you the, you know, got, got you the publishing deal. So that's. Yeah. Fantastic. And you, you benefit hugely, frankly, from being an insider, from being somebody who can say to your friends, you know, tell me about your agent and about working with them. And and I can't say, I wouldn't call myself really an outsider and that I do have friends who are writers and I did go to a master's program in writing, but the, I didn't have anybody who was an obvious in, I would say I was, I wasn't reaching out to my friends, agents because they weren't good matches for various reasons. So the people who I was pitching to, they hadn't heard of me and there was no reason for them to have heard of me. I wasn't the famous writer. I didn't have you know, um, a short story coming out in the New Yorker or something where I had agents coming to me asking to represent me. It was really me going and saying, please, please read my book. Um, (laughs) And luckily some of them wanted to. Well, I know we we don't want to give too, too much away about the book, but what's, um, what's the book about? The book is about a young woman who's 24 years old. She's living in a city and she's living kind of gross lifestyle. She is quits jobs constantly. She's really impulsive. She works at a lot of low-level jobs. She has a GED. She hasn't gone to college. And she is just a sort of difficult, spiky loner when she hears from her strange family, her uncle, that he would like to buy the house that she inherited from her parents. And so her intention is to go back to her hometown, which she has been trying to avoid for years, to sell him this family house and then leave and restart her life. And she's not quite sure what that will look like. She doesn't have goals or aims that she wants to achieve. It's not like she's trying to, you know, get a degree to be a beautician or something. She just wants to be away from everybody she knows. So she goes back to her hometown and what she finds is actually she, the idea of selling her house to her uncle is a lot more emotionally complicated than she expected it to be. And so she makes quite a shocking decision of something that she is going to do to prove to herself that she can accomplish an impossible task. Interesting. Interesting. Complicated relationship between her and the uncle. Yes. Not a very good relationship. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a sad thing in families in general, but I'm sure that's something that a lot of people can relate to or this idea of complicated family relationships. And I I have a friend, I was, I was, when I was in Chicago last week, I was uh, with a friend of mine, uh, we work in the same industry and, and she was describing to me, this tense relationship she has with her parents. Mm. Um, it's mother, stepfather. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, that's, that's really sad. I, you know, I hope you can patch things up. And during that same trip, I learned that my neighbor's father had passed away and he and his father had been estranged. His father basically cut him out of his life for mm. a lot of various reasons that I won't go into. But um, I told her when I heard that, I said, Hey, I just, you know, I just found out that my friend's father died. I know you're having a, a hard time with your parents. I'm like, I think you need to patch things up. Mm. Um, and this is me. I mean, I, you know, we're, I've known her for a long time. 
I don't know the history of her relationship with her family. Then, of course, she starts saying, well, you don't know how it is between me and my family. It's very tough. They're very hard on me. Within 10 minutes of us having that conversation, her phone is ringing and it's her stepfather on the line. Mm. And he was inviting her over for you know Easter dinner or just kind of confirming their plans. I don't know. Just kind of, the universe was working in a very strange way for me last week. Yeah, but yeah. And I, you know, I think I went off on that little tangent there <laughs> because this idea of complicated family relationships, it mm. is sad, but it seems like you tap into that in, in your debut. Yeah. And I would say I would actually have disagreed with your advice to her. I think, I oh. think that there are complicated and complex family relationships that are worth investigating and worth repairing. But I also think that boundaries are good sometimes. And sometimes you have to have painful boundaries, even with members of your family. Yeah. In my book, not to you know give a spoiler, but not all relationships are repaired because I guess I think as a person, not all of them can be. And that's not to say that I don't think that there should be attempts made or that there is, I think that there is a place in the world for forgiveness and trying to see other points of view and trying to be kind to other people. But I also think that sometimes a healthy boundary is having healthy boundaries. And that's sometimes as adults, we have to do that. So I could understand your friend's point of view, but I hope yes. that her getting back in touch is, is ultimately a good thing for her. I do too. And I'll find out later today, I hope. Um, okay. But uh, but this is why I don't give professional advice. Yeah. You know, I, I did not I did not pursue my dream of getting my PhD in clinical psychology. Um, mm. So I uh, probably for, uh, I don't know why I have a fork in my hand, but uh, probably the right decision for my prospective patients. Yeah. Well, you mentioned mentorship a few times. I want to, mm. I want to uh, kind of dig into that a little bit more because I, I, I do know that kind of writing as a writer, we do need mentors in our life. You know, mm-hmm. I certainly from when you're younger as kids, we all need mentors to do various things. As we grow up into adulthood, we still have a role for them. So what's your uh, take on mentorship? So I think it's an interesting question because sometimes how I've seen mentorship used in publishing nowadays is a for marketing and publicity. So to say that a certain writer, a certain new young writer who you wouldn't have heard of is it was mentored by a very famous writer allows you as a marketing and publicity to make a connection that makes this writer, younger writer, look like they are sort of chosen for success. In my case, I would say, I don't think I actually have a mentor. I've been lucky to work with incredibly talented writers who are lovely people. And I felt very lucky to work with, but I wouldn't call any of them a mentor specifically where I felt like we had like a special relationship where I could, you know, I would call them on the phone and say, um, you know, in the case of finding an agent, I didn't have a super successful, you know, older writer who I would call and say, Hey, can you tell me, can you help me out with this or give me your opinion on this? So I think that sometimes the idea of mentorship, one can be a little bit overstated, In some cases, I think, for example, in my um, letter to query agents, I mentioned that I had said, oh, here are some writers that I've taken workshops with. And I found later those writers described as my mentors in a way that I felt actually very uncomfortable with, because I felt felt that it was overstating relationship, where my relationship was that I I was a student in a workshop where they were the teacher. And that's not really, that's student-teacher relationship. That's not a mentor relationship. And I would feel, you know... honestly a bit embarrassed for this writer to hear that I had referred to them as my mentor, because I think that that's not, not quite true. But also in some ways, I think that it's a bit tough because for people who are really outside of publishing and writing, who have a story to tell, hearing about people have mentors, right? Other writers having famous mentors can sort of push this idea that you already have to be an insider 
to succeed. And that makes me really uncomfortable because I think that if you grow up in a small town in Kentucky and you are, you love reading and you love writing and you love to write stories, you shouldn't have to go to Columbia MFA program and move to Brooklyn or go to Iowa Writers Workshop in order to feel like you have a chance of success, in order to feel like your story to tell is interesting or important. So I don't think that we should have to be linked to success in order to be successful ourselves. That that idea makes me a little uncomfortable because I think it pushes people who already might see themselves as outsiders further outside the realm of power and possibility and success. And I don't like that because those are the stories that I want to hear. I want to hear the stories of people who aren't necessarily you know, didn't move to New York city at age 22 and work in publishing and then, you know, go to parties at certain literary magazines. And then, you know, it seemed like their career was just a snowball that built up bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until obviously they had a massive deal for a debut novel. I want to hear about the people whose stories aren't quite like that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I mean, there is this sort of business side to publishing, you know, where, you know, it's, it's interesting. I talk to people and they're like, well, you know, the writing must be the hard part, right? And I'm like, you know, actually writing is the, it's the easier part. It's the fun part. It, that doesn't mean it's not challenging, but it's the next part of it, you know, where, when you're trying to get, you know, people who are not related to you or who are not friends with you to care about what it is you've done, what it is you've written. So I can easily see where, you know, people want to sort of, I don't want to say latch on, but associate themselves with, someone who they feel like, okay, well, my relationship or the perception of a relationship with this person can get me to the next level. There, there is sort of a little bit of like yuckiness in there though, Grasping. right? I mean, yeah, it is. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I totally agree. I totally feel that. But I also know how, how darn competitive it is for anyone who, you know, didn't, you know, go to those, you know, Columbia MFA programs and who didn't, you know, kind of grow up with maybe a silver spoon in their mouth and have the luxury of, you know, time to kind of, you know, just do, I don't want to say do nothing, but yeah, you know, just concentrate on writing to the exclusion of making money. It's that makes life harder. I mean, I wrote my book when I was 39. I think I, that would not have happened if I had a ton of money. It wouldn't, uh, just the fact that I had to pay bills was different. It probably would have been a different book, but also the fact that you had to have those struggles and pay those bills gave you a life experience that I'm sure you tap into when, when it is your writing and developing characters and developing storylines. And people can sense that. They, they can yeah. sense, I think people can sense, you know, when someone is coming from more of a place of authenticity. And I think authenticity only comes with probably vulnerability, but also life experience. I think, Just, I, yeah, I think that you're right. And I think that there is a sense of economic hard times in my book that is, is something that's familiar to me. Uh, and that I think, I hope I represent accurately because it's, it would be meaningful for me to represent accurately. And, you know, in some ways I would say there are just, sometimes it feels like there's so many books about, you know, complicated marital relationships among upper middle-class people who are kind of like a coastal elites <laughs> that, right. I don't know, doesn't feel like, doesn't feel like a lot of my life, you know? Yeah. And I, I like my book maybe being a bit different than that. And I think it will appeal to people who maybe need something that's a bit different than that. Very cool. Well, I have some uh, hot seat questions for you. And these are all in the uh, in the attempt of getting to know who you are a little bit more as a person. So mm-hmm. I always start off with, uh, with one that sometimes authors have a hard time, uh, have a hard time with, but we'll see how you do, which is, Colleen, what were some of your favorite TV shows when you were a kid growing up in Middletown, Connecticut? Golden Girls. My Instagram handle is the former Mrs. 
Stanley Spornak, which is a reference to the Golden Girls. I am obsessed with the Golden Girls. I love it. I've watched a lot of TV. I watched a lot of AMC. I watched a lot of um, Turner movie classics. I love classic movies um, and saw a lot of classic television, actually. Uh, so I just constantly watch TV and read books. I definitely was a child of media. I had a single parent and I had two siblings. We spent a lot of time watching TV and eating Doritos growing up. So, I mean, we've lost all of our golden girls now, right? Um, yes, they're, they're all gone. Betty White was the last one, but do you have a favorite golden girl? I mean, I definitely have a favorite golden girl, but do you have a favorite golden girl? I do have a favorite golden girl. I am definitely a, a character wise. I am definitely a B Arthur, a Dorothy, but I am, um, I would probably want to be her mom, I guess. I would like to be like the brutally witty old lady, but yeah. I actually am like the sort of awkward Dorothy. Yeah. Sophia, right? Sophia was Sophia, the that's mom. right. Yep. You know, what amazed me was that they weren't that different in age. Like the, the, the actual no. actors were, I think, the same age, or I think maybe yeah. Estelle Getty was younger, younger, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I think she was younger. And I they she definitely had a, like a terrible wig on in early seasons, a terrible powdered wig that really looks awful. But yes, she, I think she was younger than some cast members. I still think Rue McClanahan was the youngest, was the youngest in the show. And I think she was the youngest in real life, but yeah, Estelle Getty was not that far different than Rose and Dorothy. Estelle Getty was in a horrible movie with Sylvester Stallone called, I'm laughing because I remember it, Stop or my mom will shoot. Of course, stop or my mom will shoot. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. That's yes. that's uh, that that will go on my other podcast, which is called Celluloid <laughs> Zeros, that I do with my brother, where we talk about bad movies. But um, my answer to the to my own question is um, Rue McClanahan. I mean, give me uh, give me Blanche. You know why? Because wonderful. She, she had she had so many great one liners. But you know, watching it as a kid, I didn't get all mm-hmm. of like the sexual references but you yeah. know, and i didn't know why my mom was laughing so much at it you know so this <laughs> is a show we'd watch with my grandmother in the room and and now i uh i certainly get it but the golden girls they never made a gray guys show i think they no, should they make the not. gray guys but uh <laughs> neither here nor there all right so that's that so uh colleen if we're if we're going into your audio devices what artists would we find you listening to like thinking about some of your favorite playlists who's going to be overrepresented on those playlists I listen to, listen to podcasts more than I listen to music these days, honestly. Yeah, I'm a more of a, a podcast person. I definitely don't listen to music when I'm writing, which I know some people do to yeah. set the mood, but I can't, personally, I need silence. Like I can't write in a coffee shop. I can write in a silent library or I can write at home or in an office where there's nobody else there, but I, I can't listen to music when I'm writing. And I listen to music when I'm running or sometimes when I'm running errands by myself, but that rarely happens because I have small children. So they're usually with me. Got it. So, but no answer, no, no favorite musical artists out there. I can't know. uh, Yeah. I I immediately, what came to mind is the podcast that I'm listening to and I'm not, I guess I listen to spoon sometimes. Oh, wow. Okay. There you go. Little nineties. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What is some of your favorite podcasts then? I really like, Oh, let me just look at my phone right now and see what I've been listening to. I listen to in order to go to sleep at night. I listen to a podcast called in our time with Melvin Bragg, which is a history podcast where they just take on one idea in history and talk about it. So it could be like a a character like Alexander the great. It could be the idea of charisma and there will be a panel of experts who are all uh, professors at Cambridge or Oxford. And they talk about this idea. I love it. I really like um, Conan O'Brien needs a friend. Oh my God. That's my, that is one of my favorites. 
I love it. It makes me so happy. And when I, the early days of having my baby, I would take her for a walk every Monday afternoon. And I would listen to Conan O'Brien's needs friend while I walked through a particular park in London. And there's a certain number of loops I could do in the park while I was listening to it before it came to an end. And I think it was three and a half loops or something. And then I would need to start getting home. And then by the time I got to the door of home, the podcast would be over. That So I, you know, you, you said you'd listen to music sometimes, maybe when you run, I'm a runner. I like to run long distances. I'm always listening to podcasts and I always, you know, once a week it's Conan O'Brien, but it gets me into trouble because sometimes I'm laughing so hard that <laughs> I have to, I have to stop. So there was yeah. one episode, he did one with Paul Rudd recently, but there was his first interview with Paul Rudd. They get to a point in the conversation where they're just making up the names of, of alcoholic drinks. And I am dying of laughter. I, and I, yeah. I told, uh, you know, I, I'm like, Nic- I, I call my wife. I'm like, you got to listen to this episode. Cause she's a big Paul Rudd fan. You mm-hmm. got to listen to this. And she just, I just so funny. He's so funny. He's so witty. He was my favorite of the late night talk show hosts. Oh, he was one. I, I, his sense of humor, which is really irreverent and stupid and childish is also my sense of humor. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, like Triumph, the comic comic insult dog. I love I so much. So oh, much. yeah. No, it's, it's good. Good stuff. All right. So moving on to something more literary. How do you feel, you know, what emotions do you experience when you are staring at a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen and, and your goal is to write something that day? And what do you feel? I feel really excited about that possibility. As, as I mentioned, I've got two kids under three. And so when... It's not often that I am sitting down to write and have, you know, an office, a quiet office, a peaceful time. So I feel very grateful when I, that is my circumstance and really energized by it because most of my time doesn't look like that. It isn't that calm. Isn't that quiet. And so to have um, moments when I can really think and plan and plot, I feel, yeah, I feel really energized and excited by that. All right. What lesson about writing or publishing you can pick? Uh, do you feel like you had to learn or that you did learn the hard way? Mm. I would guess about resilience. I've been, I can't think of how many rejections I've gotten in writing. It's really a lot. So I mentioned that I drafted a first book when I did my master's program, sent that out and I heard nothing. And that was, there's something that was so profoundly embarrassing about that almost because people knew in the writing program, people know when you're, you're wrapping your book up, people know that when you're sending it out and there is this sense of competition and who's, you know, who signed with which agent. And so the total radio silence was just mortifying. And the longer it went on and I knew that, Oh, I was, I wasn't going to hear back at all was very difficult, but I guess to me, it was a tale of resilience and, continuing to try and also putting myself around the right kind of people. And so I mentioned, I think this adult workshop that I did where the people were a lot older than I was and they were just, they were so inspiring and they were so energetic and they were just, they just felt lucky to be in a room together talking about books and talking about writing. And there was something about that was right for me at the time and felt really good. And I felt lucky to have the chance to be around them and still to have a lot of them in my life, actually still now years later. So I guess what I would say is at whatever level of writer you are, whether you're a person who's just starting out or you're a person that's been trying for a while to get something published, you're just going to be told no many, many, many times. And you just have to keep finding what you like about writing and keep doing it. 
Um, because however talented you are, you could be incredibly talented person. And if still the idea that you have for writing the book isn't, doesn't feel right for the moment, it's not going to sell. And that doesn't mean that it is necessarily a marker of you as a person or the quality of your book. It just is the circumstance and you just have to sort of learn to accept it and move on and keep finding the things that make you energetic and excited about writing, make you love writing. Well, you just uh, segued or beat me to the punch. Uh, You can be the judge of uh, what my next question is, which is what advice would you give an aspiring author? Oh man. Uh, Other than what I've said already. Hmm. I would say to read contemporary fiction, actually, and that, that I would say is a mistake of mine. I like, I honestly like really old books. I like backlist books. I like E.M. Forster. I like a lot of classic novels. I love Toni Morrison, but I like a lot of writers who are now dead and have been dead for quite a long time. And I think that something that is really helpful in framing your book, if you write a book and are sending out a manuscript is you need to make the case that it's part of contemporary conversation. So you need to be able to say, my book is like these other books and having a sense also of what is selling, what people are interested in talking about is very helpful and helps your agent also understand how to frame and sell your book. And last but not least, if you could write a letter to your younger self, you know, to that child who is pilfering library books mm. in Middletown, Connecticut, what would you say to your younger self? How, what kind of words of advice would you give your younger self? Invest in Apple. <laughs> and then I wouldn't have to work at a hospital. And then I wouldn't have to do, we get a race. This podcast interview probably wouldn't have happened because I would be so rich. I you would probably, own all podcasts. You probably wouldn't you would be my book, employee. Though. That's right. I'd be working for you. (laughs) So invest in Apple. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. Very good. Um, Well, Colleen, where can people go to buy a housebreaking, which is your debut novel? As of tomorrow, the 19th of April, it is available everywhere. Fine books are sold. There you go. And if people want to learn more about you, Colleen, any website, social media handles you want to put out there? Yeah, I am on Instagram. I mentioned my handle is the former Mrs. Stanley Spornak. And I have a website, which is www.colleenhubbard.com. All right. Colleen, thank you very much for taking some time out of your day to chat with me. I appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. It was so nice talking to you. Thank you.